Welcome back to our annual episode of the Film Illiterates podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're back at it again, Joe. We have literally, like for the past three years, only done a podcast episode in January. I know. It's kind of like always like our New Year's resolution. Like, we're going to do this. We're going to actually make a, an actual regular thing out of this. And it never happens. Mm-mm. Never does. Uh, as usual, if you've been sticking with us for the past three years, I'm Joe, and uh, with me is the incomprehensible, uncomparable Nathan Stone. It is I, yes. That's a long title. I think you need to shorten that a bit. I'm keeping it. That is staying in. All right. So we have gathered around, um, cracking our beers open as we speak. And I'm, uh, I'm sitting here with my, my hot butter rum and my beer, and I am, uh, I'm ready to talk about some movies. How was your Christmas break, Nathan? Uh, it was pretty good, actually. You know, what's nice is, you know, I'm from San Diego, so we rarely get any rain at all. And uh, we got a nice amount of rain this time around. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, we got enough to have some snow up in the mountains, you, uh, you know, and that was kind of enjoyable. Um, you know, most people would say like, oh, why is it raining on Christmas and New Year's? For me, it's like, that's the one thing I look forward to. So Did you get um, to theaters uh, on uh, over Christmas break. Yeah, I think, you know, during this uh, this last uh, month, it was kind of like catch up season for me. So I kind of was able to wedge in a couple of movies that I really wanted to see, just didn't have time. And so I was kind of like, you know, getting in as much as I can. Most of all, the Oscar bait movies that are kind of coming out right now um, is kind of like what I had on my radar. So I kind of did that. Uh, what yeah, about you, I've, Joe? I've sadly fallen behind on my my uh, my Oscar watching this this year. I, I I don't know. I just I I find it hard to to get interested really in anything. Like like last year we had uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which I was pumped for. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year it's when I, I don't know if Beale Street could talk, which I I'll admit I don't know anything about, um, mm-hmm. which I'm sure I'll uh, have to check out before Oscar season comes around. Uh, but mm-hmm. I I I um. Me and the family, we went out to New Jersey to visit family for Christmas, and I got to the theaters a couple times uh, to see a couple of movies, uh, one of which, or both of which, may uh, may end up as a topic of conversation later today, so I won't divulge what I saw. Yeah, just keep it keep the surprise for later, as they exactly. say. Exactly. Um, I've narrowed it down, though, just to movies that are in theaters now. <laughs> yeah, so if you probably have guessed, everyone, we're going to actually be talking about... Uh, you know, the top 10 movies from 2018 of last year and which ones were our number ones and which ones were not our number ones. Maybe not that one. That's probably for another time. And we don't care about those movies either way. But before we get into that, uh, we'll talk about some movies that we've watched yeah. recently on mm-hmm. our own. Uh, so, Nathan, what have you what have you been watching? Okay, so uh, I'm kind of like, uh, as I mentioned, I was kind of like playing catch up uh, for a lot of these films. Uh, the one thing, actually, I was kind of like doing this uh, these past two weeks uh, was uh, sticking around with family. And uh, this was a film that basically was introduced to me by my dad, who apparently was watching this on, you know, sci-fi of all places, called Santa's Slay. And this is one, Joe, I highly recommend to you to do a review for Film Illiterates in the future if you ever get the chance. But I'm just going to kind of set the stage for you. Basically, imagine if Santa was a wrestler, like a big, like, you know, burly, like a Norvik wrestler who makes his ambition to come and actually kill and assassinate all the bad boys and girls and people in this one town. 
I will set the stage for you. James Kahn and Fran Dresser are like these two like rotten rich um, couple with their family. And suddenly Santa does not come down the chimney. He busts through the chimney and basically, you know, lights Fran Dresser's hair on fire, skewers some of the kids with a, like a, a poker and just a bunch of shenanigans have happened. And it's just one thing after the other, after the other, it, literally it's just, they, the writers and the director of this just were having a lot of fun with it. It's like Sam Ramy level of just slapstick violence and humor. And it's something you just can't take seriously. But the fact that you got all these big names in it, James Caan and Fran Drescher, who are taking hits from this, you know, uh, wrestler whose his name is a uh, Bill Goldberg. He's been in a few movies, but he's a big guy. And you can tell like, okay, Santa's been, you know, taking his protein shakes. Uh, that's actually really interesting because because when I heard that you saw this, I just kind of assumed it was one of those uh, asylum movies made for TV, bottom of the barrel trash movies. It, it, it kind of like, has a feel for that, yeah. But it sounds like there's some actual like talent behind it. <laughs> I think that's what makes it funny, and most of this talent is the one that just gets axed off in the beginning of it. And James Con, man, that's crazy. <laughs> it is. It, like I said, I think Joe, you would have a blast watching this. And that's why I highly recommend if like, if you get the chance next uh, holiday season, definitely watch and review this movie. It's worth adding it. to the list. Um, other than that, uh, uh, one of the films I kind of saw, which I will kind of save a lot of my commentary for later in this uh, podcast was uh, if Beale street could talk. I surprisingly, enjoyed it probably one of the better dramatic films i saw and uh yeah i'll save a lot more of you know talking about that later because there's a lot to talk about other than that a big thing i've been kind of doing is listening to podcasts i just recently picked up on this one called pure cinema and this one is kind of similar to a lot of like you know film podcasts they kind of delve into the history of cinema and they pick topics um it basically it's these two guys who are you know um, you know, film connoisseurs. And the one I was listening to recently was basically they're kind of going through um, the filmography of Martin Scorsese. But what they'll do is they'll start from like their his first films and then they'll kind of like mention like, well, I saw when I saw this film, it kind of reminded me of another film I saw and they kind of do their comparisons. And I thought that was kind of really nice just kind of gain that, you know, a lot more kind of in-depth conversation and seeing the relations of like um, how Scorsese's films have kind of like, you know, resonated with a lot of just filmmakers before him and even after him. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to probably start listening to that a little bit more and see where it goes. Nice. I've been listening to a lot more uh, film podcasts over the, over the, the past year or two. I uh, haven't heard of that one though. Yeah, I'd say check it out just because I think like some of the, you know, titles they bring up in their conversations is it's kind of interesting. Um, and yeah. Nice. Well, I worked over some uh, some movies in the past week, specifically on uh, or the past couple of weeks. Christmas Eve. Uh, what, what What is the greatest Christmas movie of all time, Nathan? It's Die Hard. <laughs> of course, it's Die Hard. I revisited Die Hard. I watched it Christmas Eve, and uh, just just Christmas Eve, I happened to have have an evening to myself after the kids went to bed, and uh, I just I, I I was looking for a a new Christmas movie that I hadn't seen yet, uh, a, a list of shame movie, and I just ended up just throwing on Die Hard because I felt like comfort food, and Die Hard is pure Christmas comfort food. 
But it's the and, best kind of comfort food, you know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, comfort food in the best possible way. It's. I think it's fascinating that we have this this whole conversation about if it is or is not a Christmas movie or all all, the, all that all that stuff. But it's. Um, Let me just ask you this: Does it take place during Christmas? Who <laughs> doesn't have to only take place during Christmas? I, I I think I think when people think of Christmas movies, I think of specifically kind of you know hot chocolate, warm and fuzzy Santa Claus, nativity, that kind of stuff. Uh, and they did, and so I think what turns them off to Die Hard is the fact that it's you know a violent action movie with f bombs every other word. But at at its heart, it's a story about a man trying to save his marriage so that his family can be together for Christmas. And it's a lighthearted romp of an action film. It's not a downer movie. It's not a dark movie. It's a it's a fun, light, violent, admittedly violent action movie. Uh, with kind of a golden heart and it throws in a little Christmas cheer here and there. So I think it's absolutely, if it's the spirit of Christmas, it is absolutely a Christmas movie. And by a total accident, I ended up watching it on Christmas night uh, as well. So I watched it two nights in a row, Christmas Eve and Christmas night, uh, because we had a family member who hadn't seen it yet. And so we said, eh, we'll throw it on, uh, show him. So um, I got a double dose of Die Hard this Christmas and I have no regrets. No regrets. Uh, another movie that I watched recently, so for the past couple years, I've been working through as many movies from 1934 as possible. I think I'm up to October now, because I'm working through the, the year in chronological order, according to release date. And I watched a movie called Man of Aaron, which is a uh, a documentary by... I forget the name of the, 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 the documentarian, the, the director who did... Uh, what was that controversial Eskimo documentary? Oh, Nan- oh, you talked about Nanook of the North? Yeah, yeah. It's the same guy who did Nanook of the North. And he did this movie, which is a very similar thing of just, you know, how people live in this this small uh, Gaelic island out in the middle of nowhere. And from what I understand, it suffers from the same fate as Nanook of the North, where everyone says that he staged everything, uh, even though it's unrealistic. Um. That's not my problem with this movie, though. This movie, and my problem with this movie is that it's just dull, dull as all hell. It's just shot after shot of waves crashing on rocks, and these people, you know, they they go hunting sharks, but they're just sitting in boats the whole time, and it's, you know, it's it's, it's like a, it's like a repeat of similar shots for the entire thing because they don't have a whole lot to work with, and they you never really get to humanize these characters because they don't get very many close-ups so you just focus on the mechanics of what they're doing and the movie is like an hour and 13 minutes long and it feels so much longer so that is a hard unrecommendation for man of aaron you know it's one thing to kind of like mention about this um this filmmaker the guy who did man of aaron and nanook of the north you know he was already kind of like setting the stage of like well what documentaries are like now today you know as much as like he was trying to capture the reality of those worlds he was you know trying to film he kind of did have to do a lot of staging um and as you kind of saw in this one you know when there's nothing really happening because well sometimes that's life uh it's not exciting and it's not like dangerous or there's no stakes you kind of have to set or at least do some editing in that and i think that's kind of well just changed in how documentaries are kind of even perceived today yeah, if he if he fabricated most of what happens in this documentary, then he did a piss poor job because he could have <laughs> he could have fabricated something more interesting. <laughs> exactly. Maybe just have some of the people like, or maybe some of the sharks flying out of the water or something like that. You know, it could have been the first Sharknado. 
is uninspired. Um, and then uh, last movie I'm going to talk about recently uh, is so 2019. It's a new year. Every year I try to work through a, a, a past year in cinema. So I've been working on 1934 for the past few years. Last year I also was working on 1956. This year uh, Nick and I are going through 1986. Oh, nice. So, so I watched my first movie from 1986 uh, this past week, uh, which was Hannah and Her Sisters, directed by Woody Allen. Nice. Was this your first Woody Allen film, or have you seen other works of his? I've seen a few others. Uh, the, the the two that come to mind are Blue Jasmine and Midnight in Paris. So more of his recent ones, but... Right. And what surprised me about Hannah and Her Sisters was how similar it was to those mm-hmm. newer ones. Yeah. Um, it, it, like, like it's, it's, it's almost like Woody Allen hasn't changed in the past 30 years as far as you know, filmmaking sensibilities and storytelling sensibilities. It has this the same kind of casual, uh, I don't want to say unfocused, but just kind of wandering narrative type of, of, of story that he has in his in his newer ones and his you know characters have very real human conversations back and forth and i really en- enjoyed that I've, i i love I, lo- I love the technical aspect as far as how he structured the movie um it's fractured without feeling complex uh so i i i enjoyed it on that level um i had kind of a problem with how because there's there's quite a few different stories being told in this movie and there's separate characters have their own kind of arcs. And uh, some of them I felt satisfied and I liked the way that they ended. And some of them I felt were very uh, unintentionally depressing. Um, uh, Woody Allen plays a character in this movie called Mickey and the way his arc ends specifically felt really nihilistic to me. But I don't. But I don't know if that's just kind of like my my old school Catholic sensibilities coming in because his deals with you know religion and all that kind of stuff. And I'm kind of like, well, that's kind of a depressing outlook on life. Uh, but I don't know. That that might just be me. I mean, honestly, like I will say this: if you kind of seen one Woody Allen film, you've kind of seen them all. Like in the past, like years, he's been around and has produced like as many movies as he could they all kind of start bleeding into each other as far as tone, a storyline and like the stakes. And I do kind of agree with you. I kind of feel like, you know, it delves a lot with different arcs and different characters. And sometimes I think actually uh, some of uh, Woody Allen's best work is when he's focused on like, you know, a central couple or just one character. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely need to go back and watch some, some classic Woody Allen. Um, But I I would, I would still recommend Hannah Hannah and her sisters. It's not a five-star movie for me, um, but I, I had things that I enjoyed about it and things that I didn't like so much. So it's, it's a mixed bag, but generally positive. Awesome. So now we'll move into our main discussion. Yeah. Our top 10 movies of 2018. So, Joe, I need to actually ask you, what did you think overall of just 2018 in general, as far as movies go? I think it was a fine year. Um, it didn't stand out, honestly, either way. I'm looking over over my list of uh, all the movies that I've seen this past year. As of right now, I've seen 48 movies. And uh, with the exception of my number one movie, uh, there's nothing that I really loved, loved, like five-star loved. And I feel like in previous years, the past few years, We've had more movies that hit that level, but I still had movies that I, you know, greatly enjoyed. Uh, some of them I, I I I own now, and I'll be rewatching uh, in the future. Um, but conversely, there wasn't really anything that I just absolutely hated either. Uh, and 
maybe that's just because I need to watch more trash movies. But I've seen, I mean, I, I watched some pretty bad movies this year. Yeah, you're infamous for that. <laughs> yeah, but there's nothing here that that I absolutely hated. I think this movie, I tended to focus more on uh, kind of big budget cult movies. I felt like 2018 was a very good year for B movies shot on an A movie budget. Uh some of the movies that I'll, I'll reference uh, because uh, these these didn't make my top 10 list, but they're good examples of the kind of movie I'm talking about were uh, Overlord, I think, fit that bill. The Meg, Venom, uh, The Predator, the, the, the new Shane Black movie, uh, Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich. <laughs> uh, these are all great examples of kind of like really schlocky, pulpy story ideas, but done on kind of like an A-grade level and uh all of those movies i i i enjoyed some more than others but i felt like that kind of summed up the year in general yeah i i do kind of agree with you it's like there wasn't any bad movies that kind of stood out a lot of for me a lot of meh movies like you know i guess a lot of the ones that were you know promoted a lot and given a lot of hype um you know one example that calls to mind is like the big one that's getting a lot of Oscar buzz right now, A Star is Born. You know, everyone's, you know, hailing um, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper for the performances. Uh, for me, it's like, I don't know. I've, I've kind of seen this, you know, movie been done and redone like four times already. So I was familiar with it. I The angle was okay, but it wasn't anything that kind of grabbed me by surprise or anything like that. And I will say one of the things that I kind of enjoyed the most was, uh, looking at films that were a little bit more experimentative. Um, uh, one of the movies I'll kind of talk about later, um, Unsane, um, was Steven Sonnenberg's, you know, entire movie that he shot on an iPhone. And and even like something like also Searching, which is all done like on a desktop computer. Like basically that's the perspective of the whole thing. I was kind of just curious more like, well, how are these movies going to carry me for the next hour and a half? And I think they succeeded it very well. And I guess that's one thing I was kind of like paying attention to is what new areas are filmmakers kind of like starting to experiment in with like what you know new media that is available now and how are they able to like tell a story with that? How can they tell a compelling narrative that audiences still get? Um, there's also a big year for documentaries I was noticing. Like there was a lot of documentaries that were just making huge headlines. Um, and that kind of surprised me. Um, and I think as we kind of get more and more into the year, uh, I think audiences are kind of being a lot more drawn to just, you know, real stories, not nothing that was like, you know, you know, fabricated or fictionalized stuff that actually happened. And I feel like that's drawing a lot more people. When talking about bad movies specifically, when I say that that there wasn't anything that I absolutely hated, that isn't to say that there weren't any bad movies out there. Uh, oh, yeah. Stuff like uh, uh, Happy Time Murders, I would categorize as a bad movie. I just... I, I I didn't hate Happy Time Murders enough to remember it that much. Like 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 I remember it as oh that was just that bad puppet movie. Uh, Mild Twenty Two was another one. Mute was borderline pretty damn bad. Uh, I'm curious though. Um, do you have a worse movie of the year? Oh gosh, I would have to say honestly for me, and and I know I'm going to get a lot of hate for this, but the new Fantastic Beast movie that came out was just one I just did not like at all. And but I think worst that, movie of the year. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's, it, I mean, I'm like, I'm like, you didn't see any, any low budget piece of garbage. No, no, Joe, I'm not like you. I don't necessarily <laughs> have a Netflix account that I browse on all day. 
<laughs> Excuse me, I don't only get my garbage from Netflix, I also get it from Amazon. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, I think that was like the only one that kind of comes to mind right now that it was like not a real enjoyable experience in theaters. And I think it's for me, I'm getting a little kind of uh, fatigued from all like the franchise, big budget studio pictures that are coming out. I mean, I understand there's a market for it and people want these movies, but it kind of feels like they're kind of just overinflating it and not even just doing a, a, a decent job on it. And I don't know, like there's a bunch of other movies that come to mind. Um, Venom was another one uh, that I kind of felt like, you know, you could have done a little bit better with this, but it's, you know, you're giving hundreds and hundreds of dollars for it. Why, why I, could you not come up with something better? So that's one thing I could say, like, I, those were like the worst movie experiences. And at the same time, like, I didn't really have too much time to go out and spend money on bad movies or watch bad movies when I could. But there were a few. Yeah. My bottom movie of the year right now is Hellraiser Judgment, which is Hellraiser whatever number they're up to right now. I don't remember. Yeah, I did see your um, uh, letterbox ranking, and that one was like way at the bottom. I was like, okay. It, it, well, 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 it's it, it's it's way at the bottom, but it's funny because even think about that one. Uh, Hellraiser Judgment is better than the last Hellraiser movie that came out, which was I don't know several years back. Man, how many uh, sequels have there been? Because that that was a big thing this year. Was like you know there was a Halloween sequel as well, and. That was, you know, that one did better. So how is it that Hellraiser doesn't do even better? Oh well, 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 Hell, well, Hellraiser. They're just pumping them out just to keep the rights at this point. They don't yeah. care about the quality. They're they're waiting until they know what to do with it. But until mm-hmm. then, they don't want to lose the rights. So they're just kind of pumping out no budget movies, like mm-hmm. like like movies made for literally just thousands of dollars mm. right now. Uh, but Hellraiser Judgment though, uh, was I I I kind of want to commend it. Because it was done by a guy who wanted to do something different and interesting. And mm-hmm. to an extent, I see what he was trying to do. And I respect that. It's just not the sort of thing that I'm into. It's kind of more into the gross-out, putrid kind of horror as opposed to the flesh-ripping yeah. terror of the original ones. And 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 it looked good for for the budget. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, by, by by blockbuster levels, the movie certainly didn't you know it didn't didn't have nearly the budget as you know the mm. avengers or any any of that right. but uh for the budget that he had he got pretty creative with the mm. visuals i just you know the, visual, the it's not the sort of sort of thing that i'm into but yeah. he tried yeah anyway let's get into our our top 10 movies yes, of let's. 2018 so joe do you want to go first all right so my number 10 movie of the well first of all my, my my top ten movies of the year are uh, I sh- they shuffle around so frequently. Just just a few days ago, I shuffled some of these around. So th- so so the rank of these could change any day. But my number ten, as of right now, is Deadpool two. Now 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 to to be clear, this this is my top ten movies of 2018, which is a blend of what I think are the best and some of them that are just kind of selfish picks of movies that I love. So it's a, so it's it's my top ten list is a blend of best of and favorites and Deadpool 2 falls more in line with the favorite section just because I had a blast with this movie it is right up my alley it is my kind of uh, kind of meta humor uh, I actually saw it twice in theaters just because I don't know I, I had fun I like having fun when I go to the movies sometimes okay and when I have fun in the movies I like to replicate that and Deadpool 2 is just right up that street honestly i think the the best thing i keep getting a kick out of this is just ryan reynolds you know when he's in that mask when he's playing wade you know and just going out with this it's just 
the stuff that comes out of his mouth when he's like spitballing it and even just ad-libbing it, it's just fantastic to listen to. Oh yeah, it's 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 lighthearted fun, and I get that that kind of humor isn't up everybody's alley. I get that it's juvenile. I get that it's a lot of cheap, easy gags that they don't really go for any real deep humor or not, not even deep humor, but not even sophisticated humor. You know, you know, it, it can feel like they're not trying, but they're just yeah. having a lot of fun. And I think that translates really well to the screen. Mm-hmm. And I, what can I say? When the opening credits came up, I laughed and mm-hmm. the whole rest of the movie, you know, it was hitting us with jokes that, mm-hmm resonated with me um yeah. it's not a it's not a very it's not a deep movie by any means uh but it's a very entertaining one for me and if you didn't love it i i get that mm-hmm. but for me it's up there for that reason so what's your what's your number 10 okay so i had to pick between one or the other um obviously this was a big year for marvel it feels like every year they're coming out with more and more movies um this year there was a total of three marvel movies that came out um and it's, I feel like that number is going to keep growing or shrinking. We'll have to see. Um, now, I could have gone with Infinity War because I had a great time with that. But I think for my number 10 pick, it has to be Black Panther. And a couple of reasons why is because it, it felt quite different from all the other Marvel Universe films. Like this one definitely had a rhythm and a beat of its own. And I think for... I think it comes from just, you know, uh, director Ryan Coolidge, uh, you know, really taking the time to like, you know, uh, really delve into this world of Wakanda to really have us understand the the rituals and the experiences that everyone's going through, um, especially the main character. You know, it kind of takes place right after Civil War, where, you know, uh, Chotel uh, is basically now the king of Wakanda and he's going through the whole, you know, you know, rite of passage into that. And realizing he's got a bit of responsibility on his shoulders to kind of like, you know, fix his country, fix the world, fix those who kind of fell away from Wakanda. And then when you have the villain who comes in, played by uh, Michael B. Jordan as Warmonger, I I honestly have to say probably one of the best Marvel villains to come on screen. Um, Only because like you understand where he's coming from and his intentions of doing it are not like, you know, half-assed which i kind of feel sometimes is a big problem with marvel movies the villain just feels a lot flatter than what they could be and this one it felt very real felt very grounded um did you have a chance to see black panther at all oh yeah i saw it everybody everybody saw black panther well, yeah i mean it it, it 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 just it didn't do anything for me to really elevate it above yeah i don't know i think lion king is a great movie i mean black panther is a great movie (laughs) i was actually gonna make a comment that (laughs) this movie probably will be a better lion king movie than the live action lion king movie that is set to release great movie i have very few complaints if if uh if any complaints so yeah so for number nine this is kind of interesting because this is kind of like both of you and i kind of have this at our number nine right now and that's annihilation Yes, I actually feel like I need to rewatch Annihilation. I I got it on Blu-ray and I haven't checked out the Blu-ray yet, and I've only seen the movie once. Um, since I saw the movie, Annihilation is one of those high-concept sci-fi movies that, again, is right up my alley. Uh, but this one reminded me a lot of stuff like you know, two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, uh, Andre Tarkovsky's. Yeah, Stalker. I was going to Stalker. I was going to say Stalker when we kind of reviewed the movie. Like, uh, it deals with a lot of a the similar kind of just setup with these characters going into the zone or the shimmer, as they're calling it, and uh, them experiencing a lot of just supernatural um, phenomenon. When they're yeah. in there, 
And every once in a while, a movie comes up that I may not understand fully, but it fascinates me, and I need to find out more about it and do more, more research. And Annihilation was one of those movies. So as soon as it ended, I went out and I ordered a copy of the book, and I, I read the first two books because it's a trilogy of books. And I read the first two books you know, right away, and I'm still working through, through the third book, uh, which is far beyond you know, what the, the movie ended with. Uh, but it's 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 just kind of the, it's the sort of movie that I really want to dig into afterwards and read what the filmmakers had to say about it, what the writers had to say about it, what the original source material was about. Just to, just kind of pick apart my version of what I got out of it. And on top of that, it's just a fantastic genre movie. Oh it has some of the gosh, most terrifying yes. moments in yes. the year. Okay, I'm actually I want to comment on this if you don't mind. I think this movie scared me more than most horror movies that came out because I think what this movie kind of explores, what it delves into, the big questions and themes it asks are is survival like the survival and evolution of just nature something to be terrified of and these characters they're going into this place they're all experiencing these things they're all seeing a lot of this just well a lot of this imagery that you kind of realize gosh this used to be an animal and now it's another thing and how it just kind of brings in this perspective that world and nature evolves and that kind of can take us over we have to go back we have to go back now she's right i, I really don't know how much more right she has to be okay and I agree with you. We should go back. Good. Okay, great. There we go. Okay, so the three of us can just Hold pack on up a minute. Our... Hold on. We should go back. Yes, but it took us, what, six days to get here? And the coast is two days away. You're saying that we get out by going deeper in? Yeah, if you like, yeah. Like? No, I don't like. This isn't some tactic to get us to the lighthouse, is it? I believe that the coast is the best route out. Okay. Yeah, and also just kind of like a it being a a full cast of just female actresses, just kind of like really helming this um, by themselves. I thought that was impressive as well, and it didn't really pan to the fact like, oh, I'm a woman and I'm going to do this that a man should be doing. No, I kind of disregarded that once they kind of started getting into the shimmer and really dealing with these obstacles and their own struggles and their own fears and insecurities. I was kind of with that. And the the director, Alex Garland, um, he definitely knows how to use CGI well in his movies. Ever since he did Ex Machina, I've just been impressed with how he handles it. Because, you know, he could do it like how Marvel does it and just make it look really cheap. But no, he wants to make it as organic and as authentic and as real as it can be. And I think that's something I'm always impressed by. One one thing I will say about Annihilation, real quick, is that it's it's not a movie for everyone. I think the ending is going to turn a lot of people off because it yeah. goes into some real surreal psychedelic, trippy, yeah. psychedelic territory towards the end. And uh, it's sort of th the, the the ending actually is the reason. Without, I'm not, I'm not going to spoil anything here, but the ending is the reason why when the movie finished, I wasn't quite sure what I thought of it at first. Uh, I kind of looked here thinking like, well, I have, I have no idea what that was about. I got we like 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 I felt like I had a grasp on the movie for most of the movie. And then after like the last 20 minutes, I was like, I have no idea what they're doing now. I, I think I've come, come to grasp the idea that the ending is one of the reasons why I love it, because the ending is very different than the book. And it, and, it, and it gets into a lot kind of different visuals and a different territory than the book does. Uh, and so it doesn't make it easy to dissect. 
uh, which makes it challenging. And I like a challenge. And I want to be able, I want to rewatch Annihilation, and I want to chew over it and try to figure out what it means to me personally. Because I think each person will get something different out of it. Also, by the way, that finale of the movie has one of the most phenomenal, baffling visual effects I've seen in a long time. I still don't know how they did some of that stuff. It's crazy. So, Joe, what was your number eight film? My number eight movie of 2018 was a movie that I just saw recently, which is Panos Cosmatos Mandy. (laughs) I enjoyed this movie quite a bit, but I think I enjoyed it for a lot of... uh, I think I enjoyed it for different reasons than a lot of other people do. Actually, seeing the conversation around this movie is kind of frustrating to me because I I think people are reading too much into Mandy. Mm -hmm. And I think people are... expecting more of it than it's actually offering yep because the movie has a a kind of pretentious high-minded aloof tone and feel to it it's slow it's ethereal kind Mm. of like how beyond the black rainbow was and it's got characters uh the villains is especially you know talks in kind of prose and cryptic sayings and godlike metaphors Mm -hmm. And I think people are taking that aspect seriously as, oh, this movie is quote-unquote important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Panos Cosmatos just wants to make a a pulpy uh, revenge movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, because for one thing, the characters in the movie are very aware of how aloof this villain is being. Mm-hmm. And the movie takes every opportunity just kind of shit on him mm-hmm. uh and characters point out like yeah this this uh this bible thumping weirdo who lives out you know with his cult mm-hmm. um yeah which, 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 which is kind of how uh, uh nicholas cage refers to him so what you gonna do with that thing going hunting so what you hunting it's crazy evil So in love, I'll show you love. And uh, I don't think that Cosmatos is here necessarily for the story. The story is very one note. Actually, the story is one of the few gripes I have with the movie is that uh, it's 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 a visually stunning revenge movie, mm-hmm. but it is like the most basic revenge movie of all time. Yep. Uh, cutting out even you know uh, uh narrative logic mm-hmm. or anything it's 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 a collection of set pieces mm-hmm. that are meant to be uh that are meant to take your breath away yeah basically almost kind of um, like a menagerie of just like just visuals that make you kind of experience this thing that he just wants you to experience don't think too much into it or the story just like allowing his viewers to kind of like just feel the horror of what you know these characters are probably going through yeah, but it's also kind of uh, a fun in its own kind of gritty, pulpy way. I yeah. mean, it's still mm-hmm. yeah, 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 as much as it as it is about grief and revenge and uh, manipulation. Mm-hmm. It's still got Nicolas Cage with a giant metal axe <laughs> taking out like like drugged out, you know, zombie or not zombies, but like cult, you know, you know, people and that kind of stuff. Um, and it does this great thing that I love to see in movies, and it's one of the reasons that I love The Last Jedi, is is that it takes a villain that thinks they're they're cool and edgy, and you know it's all tricked out to look as menacing as possible, mm-hmm. and then reveals them to just be kind of like, uh, really kind of dumb and uh, 
I don't know, not, not necessarily nerdy, but just mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, they, 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 they aren't as intimidating as they think they are. Mm-hmm. And at their heart, they're just kind of, uh, their heart is just kind of like mushy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. It's basically, it's kind of a trend I'm kind of seeing a lot in movies these days, especially a lot they're of- wimps. Like, They're wimps. They're wimps. Yeah, they're kind of wimps. And it's like, it's it's uh, something that a lot of writers, directors are kind of doing nowadays is like, we're trying to dismantle uh, these heroes and villains that you once thought they were or what their intentions were. And, and this is the truth. And, yeah. and, and, I, I, and I like that. I like I like when movies do that. And Mandy is a great example of that. Yeah. So cool. All right. Uh, for me, I would have to say kind of going along the lines of like, you know, uh, what I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of films this year that, you know, kind of were very experimentative, that they were trying new things to kind of like take, you know, what would be like a generic storyline or a generic thriller like plot um, that would have been forgotten in the populace and try and find new ways to make it stand out. Um, searching was a good example of this, uh, where, you know, you have the whole story of this father trying to search for his daughter who goes missing, um, on social media and basically all showing from the perspective of just the computer and seeing what you can do with that. Um, now while I did enjoy that movie, I kind of feel like the movie that really did that better in my opinion was the, uh, iPhone experimentative film by Steven Sonnenberg called Insane. Sawyer Valentini, please follow me. Well, look, I, I don't have a lot of time. I, I should be back at work, so I'm not sure what's happening here. The door's locked. It would be better for everyone, especially yourself, if you just do as I ask. There's been some kind of mistake. By signing this, you've consented to voluntary commitment. I am being held here against my will. Do you know how many calls the cops get like that every week? Those are from crazy people. So, and I guess what I loved about this is when I went and saw it with some of my friends, we were thought, okay, this is shot on an iPhone 7. Uh, we'll kind of just forgive it for being cheap and weak. But surprisingly, once it got past that, it was a much more enjoyable film. And I thought, I think it, there's a lot of great stuff that Steven Sonnenberg brings in his movie, a lot of his style that still comes in through. But I love how he just decided to kind of take this leap of faith and say, you know what, I'm going to take what probably would be a forgettable thriller plot line and just do something different with it. It it provides like, for me, it provided this kind of voyeurism and this kind of sense of reality that this is happening, that most thrillers kind of tend to get lost in the stylized cinematography. The fact that it was just an iPhone capturing this kind of just made it even creepier for me. Um. Yeah, I um I didn't like this movie. <laughs> oh, and that's that's probably the very reason. Yeah. Uh no, yeah. I won't I won't get in, in, in into it here, okay. but uh I was uh, I didn't know what to expect. I went in with no no uh preconceptions about what I thought it was gonna be. <clears throat> and I came out not liking it very much. I went to see it with I went to see it with one other guy. We were in an empty theater and we were just laughing at it the whole movie, just making jokes. So that was the general tone of our viewing yeah and and honestly i'm not going to say like there's problems with it there's a lot of flaws that you kind of watch it again it's like yeah this is kind of laughable when you think about it but for me i I guess that's one thing i kind of just bought into it and i kind of just enjoyed the ride for it kind of like the same way you did with mandy like you kind of just take those little nuances and those uh shortcomings and you kind of just make it the most of the experience and i guess that was just the one thing i kind of got from it so uh and same was my mandy yeah 
Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, going on to number, what are we on? Seven? Yes. <clears throat> number seven. My number seven movie was The Love Me When I'm Dead. Yeah, uh, which which actually, you know, what? I'm going to lump in my number seven and six together here mm-hmm. because they're uh, mm-hmm. they're connected in a way. Mm-hmm. Number seven is they'll love me when I'm dead. Number six is mm-hmm. won't you be my neighbor? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason I'm pairing these together is because they're both directed by the same movie or by the same director. And mm-hmm. they just happen to be right next to each other on my top ten list. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting, like with uh, um, they'll love me when I'm dead, uh, just to kind of give some context. Just recently, Orson Welles is, uh, you know, lost film. Uh, the other side of the wind was finally edited and was released on Netflix. And this documentary, "The Love Me When I'm Dead," kind of explores the behind the scenes of what Orson Welles was going through with the studio system, how he was trying to get this made, and just a lot of the you know the backlash he was kind of getting from it at the time. Yeah, and that's what is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other side of the wind is, I think, is a very good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I quite enjoyed it, but. I was more interested in the other side of the wind because of the the behind the scenes story mm-hmm. of the making of it and what it took to get it here. Mm-hmm. And the loving when I'm dead doesn't go quite that far. It goes up until Orson Welles died mm-hmm. and he wasn't able to finish the movie, but it goes through uh, what he went through trying to finish the movie, mm-hmm. uh, which 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 is kind of kind of fascinating. And uh, mm-hmm. if you go on, if you go on to Netflix, there's another short video talking about where they picked it up and how they re- restored it and mm-hmm. finished the movie up to current days but for me the loving when i'm dead is memorable a lot of it is because of the way it's put together the kind of the unconventional way mm-hmm. that tries to mimic not as a mimic but but uh show tribute to orson welles's mm-hmm. unconventional style mm-hmm. and the, the the documentary references that and that that reminds me a lot of won't you be my neighbor mm-hmm. which similarly tries to present the story of mr rogers mm-hmm in a way that is reminiscent of his own show of the Mr. Rogers neighborhood. And uh, it's very, so Mr. Rogers, whereas Mr. Rogers neighborhood and won't you be my neighbor are kind of slow, languid, mm-hmm. childlike, loving, cozy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's a cozy documentary that mimics a cozy show. Mm-hmm. The loving when I'm dead is a quick cut, uh, unconventional, almost, uh, distractingly mm-hmm. strange mm-hmm. documentary about a movie that shot the same way, mm-hmm. and they're fantastic. They're what they're, they're, these these two documentaries are two of the most interesting documentaries just to watch from an editing standpoint, from a cinematography standpoint, from a tone standpoint. They're very well put together, and they do wonderful service to the subject matters that they're about. Orson Welles was the ultimate independent filmmaker. Somewhere between Zen master and God. No other director has been held up to such an impossible standard. Citizen Kane, the greatest motion picture ever made. Do you agree? No, certainly not. My next one is, though. Could you give us the title of that? I haven't decided what it is yet. Oh. (laughs) I actually will say, like, from what you described with these two documentaries, Joe, um, you know, with it being by the same director, I think it's just kind of interesting that both are very polar in their tones, but the fact that this director was able to kind of maybe, you know, make films that kind of almost pay homage and respect to these great men by mimicking and just like capturing that style and that kind of, you know, feeling that both of them were trying to go for, I think it's just kind of maybe just shows that this, this uh, documentarian is just really great at what he does. 
Yeah, agreed. And I and I, I haven't seen any of his earlier stuff, but I'm very curious to see what he does next. Yeah. Um, very cool. Very cool. So uh, my seventh film that I really kind of enjoyed, um, very surprisingly, was uh, Paul Schaefer's uh, kind of like uh, return to kind of like writing, directing um, film uh, with Ethan Hawke called First Reformed. Um, this movie has been getting a lot of like, you know, kind of it's been kind of like on its way of getting like, you know, recognition. It had like an Amazon Prime release. Um and what's interesting is that this movie felt a lot when I was watching it felt very much, very similar to Paul Schaefer's, you know, script when he wrote a uh, taxi driver, this idea of, you know, this lonely man going through his, um, you know, anxieties, depressions, his questions of existing, um, all revolved around like this kind of, uh, well, in a very horrific kind of incident that happens. Um, and, you know, with Ethan Hawke, he's playing like, you know, this uh, priest in this church that doesn't have a really strong following. And he himself is kind of like going through a lot of just his um, own questions of faith and, you know, existing. And, and you know, I think a lot of uh, critics kind of really like uh, how it kind of tackles the issue with, you know, uh, pollution and you know global warming and while that is a big factor of the film i i think it's not necessarily the the main focus of the film i wasn't aware that i had offended jesus didn't want our suffering he suffered for us he wants our commitment and our obedience and what of his creation the heavens declare the glory of god god is present everywhere in every plant every river every tiny insect the whole world is a manifestation of his holy presence i think this is an issue where, where the church can lead but but they say nothing the the u.s congress still denies climate change where were we when these people were elected and kind of going back to what Paul Schaefer is really good at when he makes these characters, you know, with Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver, with Ethan Hawke's character in First Reformed, he does a great job of just capturing the despairing man. And, and that's one thing I really loved about this film is it's just how it kind of encapsulated that so much. You have this priest who it just is trying to find something to keep holding on to and I think the way it's shot as well, it's just the, the sparseness of it and just the simplicity of it just makes it a lot more um, harrowing for me. So yeah, it was kind of like, you know, it was a sleeper film this year for some, but I, I kind of enjoyed it. And I, I got a lot more out of it than I was expecting. Um, and I guess uh, for both of us, Joe, um, Won't You Be My Number was number six and that was number six for you, correct? Yes, it was. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell me, tell me what, Tell me what you thought of Won't You Be, Won't you be My Neighbor. I absolutely loved it. Um, you know, I had my doubts. I was like going in, like, you know, I loved Mr. Rogers. I think you and I both grew up, grew up with him, you know, watching the show as kids. And one thing I thought was just done well, which I kind of commented on before, is just how well the director was able to create something that was beautiful to capture what Mr. Rogers stood for, that innocence of childhood, but still trying to, be a teacher of like life lessons of morals of virtue that it's something that we've kind of lost and just was done very 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 well we had a director that once said to me you take all of the elements that make good television and do the exact opposite you have mr rogers neighborhood low production values simple set unlikely star yet 
It worked. Because he was saying something really important. Love is at the root of everything. All learning, all parenting, all relationships. Love or the lack of it. And what we see and hear on the screen is part of who we become. So, my number five is another guilty pleasure, well, not even a guilty pleasure movie, but it's a very selfish pick of mine, and that is Upgrade, directed by Lee Wannell of the famous uh, James Wan-Lee Wannell uh, duo. Okay, I actually had the chance of seeing that movie as well. It didn't make my top ten, but I have to admit, it was probably the probably the better version of what they were trying to do with Venom, and this just kind of like was doing it a million times better. Yeah, this movie is, when I was talking earlier about mm -hmm. B-movies shot on an A-movie level, mm -hmm. this is the best of those movies I agree. for this year. Oh, I totally agree. I, I just had a lot of fun. I thought I thought it was executed very well. The uh, I appreciate it, without going to spoilers, I appreciated what they did with the ending. <laughs> um, I didn't think the movie would have the guts to go there, but they did, <laughs> and I applaud them for that. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. it, uh, I've seen people say that it, it, it makes a better Black Mirror episode than a feature movie, but for me, it's just... I, I I had a blast. I just I I was on board with the premise from the beginning, as with them throughout. Mm. And it's not a perfect movie. What movie is a perfect movie? Mm. But it's a very fun movie, and it's right up my alley. I think honestly, just that first scene when he's kind of like letting Stem kind of engage him with you know fighting uh, this you know invader who basically is about to kill him, and he just goes into full beast mode. That is just a blast to watch. I know how. You found me, but you shouldn't be here. You killed my wife. No, I didn't do that. That was someone else. It doesn't matter! You'll need to be a little faster than that. Why are you making me do this? Let me know if you need my help, Graves. Stop! Help! I need your permission to operate independently. Permission granted! Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's just I think that scene when you kind of see what the camera is doing in us being on the ride with the, the the guy, it's just it's a blast. So Nate, what was your number five movie of the year? Uh my number five movie would have to be Black Klansman, actually. Uh the more recent uh Spike Lee movie. Um and I, I kind of realized in this, there's a lot of like, you know, racial commentary, you know, movies on my list. But honestly, it's like a lot of them were just really good this year. And especially what Spike Lee is doing in this movie, um, I kind of have a, a guilty pleasure for watching a lot of his films. I love his style. And for some reason, why I love this movie, it was the least Spike Lee-ish movie of all of Spike Lee's movies. Um, he still has some of his trademarks in there. But it really felt like it was a different kind of picture when I was watching it. Like, it, it didn't have the same kind of, um, you know, signature style that I was so used to seeing in a lot of his other films, like Inside Man, Do the Right Thing, even like a, a, a 25th Hour. Um, and yet, I loved how he was just able to just capture that time period and just create some very, very unique scenes. Um, and, and what he's trying to do also with this as well, especially in the opening scene 
where he has like uh, this opening, you know, image of, you know, gone with the wind and kind of pointing out he's trying to recorrect just like that early time in Hollywood history with Birth of a Nation and how that film was used by the KKK. And he's trying to kind of like correct it. And there's a lot of interesting and good stuff he's doing in it. And a lot of people find it very politically heavy, especially like with the what's kind of going on right now but for some reason it was kind of enjoyable i love the performances you know um, adam driver i think some of his best acting in this as well the kkk is planning an attack how do you propose to make this investigation we'll establish contact over the phone we'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face to face you for the white race ron oh hell yeah so there becomes a combined ron, ron stalwart can you do that with the right white man. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think when a lot of people saw the trailer, I guess they all thought this was going to be kind of like a, you know, a kind of a, a comedy a satire in a way by Spike Lee, but it definitely wasn't. I mean, it does have some funny moments in it, but it's definitely, you know, what Spike Lee's good at, which is really kind of uh, bringing something to light and kind of making you a little uncomfortable about it, but really asking you to think about this. And, I kind of I enjoyed it for that. Very good. My number four movie of the movie of movie of the movie. Movie of a movie and a movie is a movie. <laughs> my number my number four movie of the movie was Apostle, the new Gareth Evans uh, joint. Not to be confused with Gareth Edwards. Thomas, your sister, she's gone. These people, they're blasphemers, a cult. A disease. Bring her home. Name? Thomas Richardson. I dream of a world in which each waking day we rise equal. This island. It's our paradise. We have an intruder on our land. We have to find him. Gareth Evans, the director, is of course known as the guy who did The Raid and The Raid 2. And here in Apostle, he's doing a was was a seemingly very different movie, uh, kind of a more dramatic uh, kind of a thriller with not not as much kung fu action <laughs> like that. There aren't people jumping into all of a sudden doing doing uh, uh, martial arts or anything like that. Uh, but his his eye for making the audience very uncomfortable is on full blast here there was a scene in here that made me nauseous during the movie and it's just it, i don't know i don't know whatever whatever nerve i have that makes me uncomfortable it just you know put a nail in that and kind of screwed it in it just made me feel ugh, really uncomfortable um but it's 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 uh it's also a very interesting movie just just from the way it's structured uh i don't want to talk to say too much about it because i don't want to give anything away uh but there's kind of two ideas in here or two stories in here. One is a traditional story of human evil uh, and kind of really despicable people and the lengths they'll go to get what they want. And the other story is kind of a, uh, a story of almost fairy tales kind of um, and almost, almost supernatural uh religious kind of stuff uh because the whole movie is about this this cult on this island um 
and the when, the when the movie digs into kind of their religion it gets into some really weird territory when you find out what they believe but it's but on the other hand you have these very small character moments and these characters that are going through these very human stories and they've all got you know their their upswings their tragedies their horror stories all on a very human level so i think the movie i think the movie balances that very well and i I, I enjoyed it, but it's uh, it's a very difficult watch at times. Yeah. So so basically, what you're trying to say is definitely watch with caution if uh, any of our viewers decide to go out on Netflix or Amazon Prime and to watch it. Just be prepared to have an upset stomach from what some of the stuff. Yes, see. absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it's enough for you to handle, right? If Joe can handle it, you could handle it. I mean, I had I maybe had to take a break halfway through, uh, but uh-huh. I got back to it. I finished it. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> All right, so for number four, my number four film of the year was the recent Wes Anderson uh, animated stop-motion film, Isle of Dogs. Uh, this came out really early in the year. Um, I still have to get around to it. It is on my list of shame for this year. No worries, no worries. I will have to say, I think it's actually one of Wes Anderson's best work, both writing and directing. A lot of like what he did really well with Fantastic Mr. Fox comes back in here, but I think just the puppetry and even just the animation itself is done with such great detail. And even like with the way he sets it up and the, the setting of it being in Japan with these dogs who kind of like, you know, get outcast to this trash island because of a dog epidemic that's going on and using and incorporating a lot of like the Japanese, you know, style and composition into his shots. You could definitely tell like he's paying a lot of homage to just a lot of like the early Japanese filmmakers and cinema and honestly it's just like it still has the same level of humor same level of heart um same level of just good characters and just whimsicalness to it um that i just got a real joy out of it like when you're seeing these dogs just you know trying to still be dogs be be civilized with each other it's it's a it's really fun to watch and listen to especially with the voice actors wait a second before we attack each other and tear ourselves to shreds like a pack of maniacs let's just Open the sack first and see what's actually in it. It might not even be worth the trouble. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe. Hi. A rancid apple core, two worm eaten banana peels, a moldy rice cake, a dried up pickle, tin of sardine, bones of pile, broken eggshells, an old smushed up rotten gizzard with maggots all over it. Okay, it's worth it. And, and just that timing and pacing, it's, you know, it's just what Wes Anderson's good at, that dry humor. But also when he gets into the action scenes, he just is able to pace it very well. Um, and I, I don't know, for it being also like a movie that kind of has a little bit of social commentary in it, it I think it it's very relevant and it's just something I think I was not expecting to be as good as it was. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Got to get around to that one. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Alrighty. My number three movie of the year is my most selfish movie on this list. Although can you say it's selfish? Cause I think the, a lot of other people who've seen it also like it as well. Oh, people so. love this, but uh, I mean, how many top 10 lists is it going to make at the end of the year? I, I'd say quite a few. I would say my number three movie of the year is Aquaman. I've waited a long time for this. Am I supposed to know who you are? I scavenged the high seas. 
You're the Aquaman. We were bound to meet at some point. This movie is just a joy to watch. I was grinning from ear to ear from beginning to end throughout this thing. I I almost can't explain it, although I kind of can. Uh, whenever whenever people talk about just how crazy this movie is, they always reference the uh, the octopus playing drums uh, in the movie. Have have you gotten around to seeing this yet, Nate? I have not, but uh, I know a lot of my friends who have seen it said it is just badass all the way through. Um, Jason Momoa is fantastic, and it's just you kind of watch him like do these scenes, and it's like he's having fun. He's having a yeah. lot of fun. Yeah, the whole the whole movie is just having fun. You got Julie Andrews voicing a a an, an undersea behemoth like of, of a creature you know and 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 you've got you know aquaman on, on riding on giant seahorses and sharks with lasers and this movie i i never felt that it took itself too seriously i felt like it knew exactly what it was and just was having fun with it uh without without becoming a parody like something like deadpool 2 was which which, which i which i love deadpool 2 but Deadpool 2 and Aquaman are two very different kinds of silly. Aquaman is the type of silly where it's just here to have you it's here to show you a good time and not apologize for it. Uh so it never draws attention to the fact that it's being silly. It just it, it just indulges. Yeah, and if anything, like it's a, definitely a change of pace with a lot of that we've been seeing in the DC Universe films that are trying to do so much with the films and they're kind of just sometimes messing it up or failing it, or they can't find a tone. Whereas with this, it's like, it knows what it is. It's going to not be dramatic. And I think that's something James Wan really fought for when he was making this movie, right? Like he just wanted it to be a good time. He didn't want like it to be like DC dark or, you know, dramatic. I'll even say this over the MC, a lot of the MCU movies. I I feel like the MCU movies uh, with a a few exceptions, feel like they need to apologize for, being goofy for instance in uh avengers age of ultron when hawkeye says you know oh i'm shooting arrows uh there's a guy flying around none of this makes any sense uh aquaman is just like no you know what we're having sharks with lasers fight crab people and you will accept this it's a damn good popcorn movie i loved every minute of it it's number three on my list deal with it deal with it now i'm gonna take it down uh, on a more depressing level, as my number three movie was the more recent um, film that came out, uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, this is the recent one from Barry Jenkins, who, as you guys know, uh, won the Academy Award for Moonlight back in 2017, I believe. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one thing I liked about this movie as opposed to Moonlight is it, there's a lot of stuff that Barry Jenkins does well, but what I thought was just very you know, beautiful and just heartbreaking about is, is how he was able to paint this portrait of this young couple and just how they're just trying to make it in the sixties, you know, from their upbringing, from where they're coming from, what they want to try and do and just how just the injustice that happens to, you know, the guy in this, his name being Fani and being locked away in a prison while his you know girlfriend is trying to support him and her family's trying to bring him out of this just kind of just watching this and not necessarily like seeing the injustice on screen but just kind of gain the feel of it it's just it's really it, you kind of like you have to feel for these characters and what they're going through um and i just thought that was done very well and there's 
also surprisingly some very good scenes in it. Like there's one scene where, you know, Fani is basically looking for a new place uh, for him and Tish, you know, to make a living. And he's in this warehouse and he's just trying to paint a picture for her of what this place could be, you know, even though all she sees is just a, a, a warehouse with pillars and echoing walls and boxes. And just there's a scene where he's like trying to describe yeah. it. See, Tish, it's, it's not done. It's a work in progress. Honey, I'm sorry, but where are we going to cook and sleep and bathe? I mean, where are my mama and them going to sit? Easy. Look, I'll put a couch right over here. Huh? Mama, daddy, maybe even Ernestine, right? And the bed I'll put all the way back there, right against the wall. So I can see that pretty light on your face when the sun rises. Some of my sculptures over here and, and over here, right? As far as eating goes, I was thinking, I was thinking we could put a table right here. What you think? I don't know, Fanny. As far as I'm concerned, the only thing we're missing is a fridge. And even just how the scene is shot, it being like this revolving camera angle. I mean, this is just the stuff that, you know, Barry Jenkins is great at, is letting his characters, you know, describe and creating this magic on the screen. And while there's some like really hard scenes to watch, a lot of like, you know, tension that exists with what they're going through, he's able to bring these moments of joy and these moments of love to the screen as well. And that's just something I really did like about it. So yeah, it's the reason why it's number three on my list. Yeah, I'll have to catch up on it when uh, Oscar season gets a little bit closer. Yeah, just don't expect a feel-good movie from this. This It's, it's a tough one. <laughs> well, my number two movie was certainly a feel-good movie, at least for me. Um, I, my number two movie is Bad Times at the El Royale. What are you doing here, Father? Do I know you, son? No, but I mean, this is not a place for a priest, Father. You shouldn't be here. <laughs> we might need to work on your sales pitch, son. <laughs> the El Royale, no place for a priest. <laughs> there are other hotels, Father. Maybe closer to Tahoe, I could help you find one. I'm sure you would be happier there. Uh, Miles, is it? If this is not a place for a priest, Miles then this is exactly where the Lord wants me. Now, you've seen this one, right? I did, actually. I did see this one. Um, I enjoyed it, too. Um, it did, it wasn't, didn't make my top 10 list, but I definitely did like what it was doing. Um, Drew Goddard, I think he's just he's good at what he does, which is just understanding the movie he's making and the tone he needs to go for. Would you agree? This is like his stab at doing a Tarantino film. Uh, yes, and... And no, um, I think it is. I, 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 I definitely see the comparisons, especially to Pulp Fiction, mm. uh, where, where everyone's saying like, oh, it's interweaving storylines and the snappy dialogue mm. uh, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I think he's just kind of doing his own thing too. It, it, I, th I think the comparisons to Tarantino are just there because Tarantino is known as being the... Mm -hmm. The R-rated converging storylines, mm -hmm. witty dialogue guy, mm -hmm. and I think Drew Goddard is doing his own version mm -hmm. of that. I think I, I think this just comes from him naturally loving the source material. Well, I mean, not source material, but just kind of like loving this story and this world that he's conjured up and wanting to do it very well. Because the movie is a very classical-looking movie. It reminded me a lot of mm -hmm. of uh, Psycho, where mm -hmm. it takes its time mm -hmm. building up. 
to big scenes. Mm-hmm. It lets whole conversations play out from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. There's one conversation in particular uh, around the around the middle uh, where it's just two characters sitting and talking, and there's no action. There is very little fancy cinematography. It's just these two characters having a very personal conversation. Uh, but then it punctuates all that, you know, with the with the violence and the humor and the crazy over the top stuff. And it does like with vantage point where it shows you the same scene over and over again from different characters' perspectives. And I I, I just I I really enjoyed it. I think it, I think the whole movie came together very well. If I have one complaint, it's that there's a scene towards the end where everything is kind of coming to a head, and the movie doesn't quite know what to do with itself. And this scene kind of rolls along aimlessly for a little bit until it picks up to the actual climax but the movie as a whole holds together very well and it's very entertaining and i just i don't know it gripped me i enjoyed it yeah for me uh this was tough because um i think these last two films this was something i was kind of debating back and forth because both were really good experiences for me and I had to choose one to be like my one or two. And it might change in the next few weeks. I might think back, okay, was this my number two or number one? Uh, but my number two film was Spider-Man Into the Spideyverse. Um, is it Into the Spideyverse or Spy- it's Spider-Verse? Um, Spider-Verse, yeah. yes. Um, Joe, I think you have this... Well, I don't want, actually, I'll scrap that out. This is my number one. We can talk about it. <laughs> okay. <together. laughs> yeah. Well, well, spoilers alert. Um, this is your number one. And I think you and I enjoy this movie for similar reasons. I will hold it still that my favorite version of Spider-Man is the first Sam Raimi version with Tobey Maguire. I know a lot of people, you know, flack on that movie so much because it's like, oh my gosh, it's so comic booky and so cartoonish. But that's the thing I love about Spider-Man as a hero in that comic book universe. I think that just works well in the comic book universe. And I think that's what makes this movie so well is they just went all out with this is a comic book universe. Get used to it. And they get really meta with it. And that was just like something I thoroughly enjoyed about it. Yeah. um, Spider-Man is my superhero. He's the one that I loved the most as a kid. He's the one I related to most as a kid. He's the one that I still enjoy the most today. Spider-Man 2, for me, is still the best superhero movie ever made. Better than Dark Knight and all those other movies. It's, 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 it's just, I love Spider-Man 2. It is a perfect movie. Um, and maybe that's just some of my personal bias going into it, you know. But uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is the first Spider-Man movie to challenge Spider-Man 2. And Spider-Man 2 is still my favorite, but Spider-Verse came very close to to topping it, or at least matching it. And I I can't really explain why yet, because Spider-Verse is, is one of those movies, kind of like how I said it with Aquaman, I was grinning from ear to ear from beginning to end. Spider-Verse was that times 100. It's just, it's just such a joy-filled fun movie it had a few surprises up its sleeves i'm not familiar with the comics especially with miles morales in the comics so uh there were there there were some scenes in there you know you know with with some plot twists that i didn't see coming that i would have if i was familiar with the comics and it was it was kind of like fun like oh i was along for the ride yeah and the whole movie and i think what made this uh so great enjoyable for me is you kind of go in knowing it's going to deal with uh multi-universes like it's not just going to dwell on just one uh, universe of Spider-Man and how he exists. It's going to bring all of these together. You think you're the only people who've got to come here? 
Hey, fellas. Is, is he in black and white? Where's that wind coming from? We're in a basement. Wherever I go, the wind follows. And the wind, it smells like rain. Hi, guys. This could literally not get any weirder. It can get weirder. I just washed my hands. That's why they're wet. No other reason. And I don't think it can be understated uh, how impactful Lord and Miller's uh, influence was on this movie. Now, they didn't direct it, but Phil Lord uh, wrote the story and he co-wrote the screenplay and both Lord and Miller produced the movie. So it's, I mean, even though they, even though they, they didn't direct it, I think it's fair to say that it's, it's very much a Lord and Miller movie at its heart. Yeah. You can really feel like you can really feel like they're they had their pen in it and they had their involvement all the way through. Yeah, and going into the movie, one of my biggest worries was about the animation because it's very unconventional yeah, animation, very kind of this comic book pop art style. It, it draws, it breaks a lot of the fourth wall as well, and draws attention to just a lot of just those comic book like you know motifs and nuances. Yeah, and it's the sort of thing where when I saw the trailers originally. I thought, wow, this looks beautiful as like a wallpaper or something you'd frame and put on your on your on your, on your wall. But as a as 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 a movie, like like my eyes were taking a few seconds to adjust to every shot. Oh, yeah. I was worried, like, oh man, I can't. I don't know if I can handle a whole movie of of this. You know, going, the colors are going by so quickly. My eyes have to adjust every few seconds. I think this movie was intentionally animated specifically for three D because I could see some of the lines, kind of like you know, um, the the stereoscopic like you know three D layering that was kind of going on. And I well, and that was a that was a creative choice too. too. Yeah. I mean, that was in the two D version of the movie too. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I kind of thought when I went to see it in two D, I was like, did I just walk into the wrong version? Should I have gotten some glasses? <laughs> The point I was getting to is that was that that was my worry going in from the trailers, but in the movie I feel like it's edited together well enough in a way that that just didn't bother me. Mm -hmm. uh, the trailers have bothered me, but in the full movie where you watch it, mm -hmm. the scenes flow together the way they're supposed to, the action scenes play out the way they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. I had I, I just I, it, it was it was a joy to watch the 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 explosion of colors. Mm -hmm fit very well together and i think that they, they they knew what they were doing from beginning to end mm -hmm. and i should have had full trust that they knew how they were going to handle mm -hmm. this style yeah because it is i mean it blends 2d animation mm -hmm. and 3d animation mm -hmm. anime a lot of all these animation all styles all these yeah styles i mean you have together you have anime in there as well and it's like uh and a warner like a looney tunes kind of like warner brothers kind of style character um spider ham is in it and you think is this going to be too much to grasp but it works yeah, it all works together, and 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 at its heart, is just very likable, interesting, engaging characters working together. Uh, I wouldn't say that the the story is groundbreaking in any way, but it's very relatable, and it fits Spider Man to his core. And I absolutely love this movie, and I can't wait to get it on Blu Ray so I can watch it over and over again. I will definitely say I think the one thing that impressed me the most was just the voice acting in this. Um, Especially John Mulaney playing like this, uh, you know, kind of like Spider Ham, this character who would have come from a Looney Tunes cartoon, and even Jake Johnson, who is kind of tapping into his like own version of like the Tobey Maguire, you know, Spider Man and Peter Parker that we kind of grew up watching. I thought that was like just entertaining just to listen to, um, especially like his like when he's like 
talking to the kid and trying to coach him through this whole experience. Cause this kid, you know, he just gets, you know, is going through this for the first time and he doesn't know how to handle it. And I loved how it just brought that whole kind of mentor, you know, apprentice kind of perspective to it all. I, that's the one thing I thought was like the heart of the movie. What are you doing, bud? I can't move. Okay, relax your fingers. We don't have time. Just, just let go. Be in the moment. I am in the moment. It's a terrible moment. They're right there. They're going to see you. Miles, you got to unstick. What do you do to relax? Relax. Needless to say, I, I am Oh, for crying out loud. Calling it quits now, baby, I'm aware. Teenagers, just the worst. So, Nate, mm-hmm. what was your number one movie of the year? Okay, well, you just went through your number one. Um, yeah, so the one I basically decided to go with as my number one movie of 2018 was the movie A Quiet Place. Um, John Krakensky's, like, you know, attempted doing a horror thriller movie that involved hardly any sound or when there is sound it freaking scares you um i thought you know kind of looking at the trailers when i first saw it i thought i like to see how they pull this off and still give me the kind of scare effects that it does and what i kind of got from it was something a lot more you know you have this world where these characters cannot make a sound and i wish i could have found like a clip that i could have used to kind of like share with it but i was able to find one you know, it's the scene where Emily Blunt um, is in the basement um, just as she's going into, you know, labor and she makes a noise and it's like, as soon as you make a noise, the creatures are going to come and they're going to try and f- hunt you down. And it's just setting those stakes is just something that it just brings up the tension so much. And I think just like that is just a good example. I think what this movie does well is it really just uses sound to its full advantage. You know, something as simple, like you don't even see the creatures like throughout most of the film. Uh, You just hear them and just a passing of them, like a growl or like a snarl that it makes is enough to just terrify you. Um, But even more so, there's this whole theme about like you know family and life and that even when you're still kind of like against these odds in a world where it's like can you exist in a world where you can't talk or like breathe or even think it's like you still see this family trying to do the best it can to survive and move on and you know there's a tragedy that kind of happens early on in the film that affects a lot of the characters and it's just very genuine drama and also i will actually say this I kind of love the the world building of this. You know how these characters had to kind of adapt, how they had to try and fight the monsters, how they had to learn from them, how they had to learn to keep living. And that's just something that I thought was just I thought kind of well thought out. Um and John Krakinski, you know, him and Emily Blunt do very well together, but Emily Blunt 
I have to applaud just because her performance in this was just something I was blown away with. I thought, oh gosh, this woman is bringing her best work out. And if she doesn't get nominated for like a supporting actress for this, I, I don't know what. Um, yeah, I, I love A Quiet Place. Um, I saw it twice in theaters. Mm-hmm. It just narrowly missed my uh, top 10 list. It's actually, I think, my number 11 movie mm-hmm. of the year. Um, and so I totally, I totally get you. It may not have impacted me the same way mm-hmm. uh, that it hit, hit a lot of people, mm-hmm. but it's it's certainly up there. Yeah. Uh, if anything, for me, it was like a really just a good like, you know, it used uh, thriller and suspense in the best way possible um, and didn't have to do anything flashy or stylized. Like, heck, they, they didn't even, they couldn't, they, if they wanted to, they didn't have to show like the monsters until the very end scene. And this movie would have worked for me. Um, it just, it just had a great way of just pacing and building that tension. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's the reason why it was probably my best uh, movie going experience this year. Awesome. So that's our top 10 movies of 2018. Yep, that's it. Uh, Nate, thanks for thanks for joining me this episode. Yeah, and also thank you, Joe, for, you know, letting us do this. You know, I, one thing I want to say is like, you know, we're going to try and, you know, make a regular cadence this time. <laughs> that's my New Year's resolution is to help you make these podcasts <laughs> on a regular basis again. Um, like more episodes. Exactly. And sometimes we'll have Alex Patton join us for certain discussions again. Um, he's also done a couple of film illiterates. And oh, he'll be back. We'll drive exactly. back. Exactly. We'll, we'll find some way to hook him in. I, I think I might have some bait that we could use. And uh, uh, if you want to follow my movie watching habits, I'm also on Letterboxd. Uh, if you search letterboxd.com slash film dash illiterate. Yep. Uh, I will probably, I, I think I need to revisit my uh, uh, film illiterate box as well. Um, Absolutely. You need to log more on there. I want to see what you're watching so I can uh, make fun of you. Exactly. We're, we're, we're setting to make Searching 2 right now. <laughs> where the big reveal is Joe's going to find out what happened to me based on the movies I've watched. There we go. I love it. Make a new new Screen Life movies. Uh, that's all for this episode of the Film Literates, Film Literates Podcast. We'll see you either next year or next week. Who knows? We'll see. And uh, keep it easy. 